Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, I'm delighted to say we are joined by returning guest Chris Broad, filmmaker, YouTuber, podcaster and now a Sunday Times best-selling author for his new book, Abroad in Japan. Welcome Chris. Hello Sam. It's been a long time. Sorry. Sorry, my voice is a bit rough. I've been doing an audiobook for three times, uh, three year, three days. God, my the unit of time. I've forgotten the time. I just man, three days in the booth doing an audiobook really takes it out of you. And uh, you're relaxing by doing a podcast, also, <laughs> uh, also in an audiobook. Oh God, I yeah, I did the three days of audiobook. Then I've just done four podcasts with my co-host Pete for the other podcast I'm on, and um, here I am with you. After two years, I think, right? Yeah, it was wild. We spoke on Zoom during the pandemic. I think it was like about May 2021. We talked about Sexy Beast for a good two hours or so, I think. I think that's exactly <laughs> the right amount of time to talk about Sexy Beast. But Absolutely. That, that, pod, uh, that pod's still in the feed, listeners. If you want to catch up uh, with our Zoom chat, uh, yeah, check out Sexy Beast. What a great film, under 90 minutes. That was a good one. Jonathan Glazer, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, gone from commercials and music videos and... Uh, channeled his creativity into just an incredible film with one hell of a cast as well it's uh he's also got a new film coming out uh, soon so good t- good time to bring him up good chance yeah. to revisit some of his work absolutely and today we're talking about the movie creep but that wasn't the original plan was it we were going to talk about saint maud and then i had a change of heart not because anything to do with saint maud fantastic film highly recommend it would love to talk about it next time i'm on providing someone else doesn't pick it but i watched this film creep and i was like I love this. I want to talk about this for an hour with Sam and see what he thinks of it. No, I, I love it. I sort of, you know, the podcast is all about recommendations, recommendations to listeners, recommendations for me, because I am very indecisive when it comes to watching. <laughs> um, so when you email to say, no, let's watch Creep, I was like, that's great. Okay, I'll pop it on Netflix. You watch so many films. Every time I talk to Sam via email, he's like, I've just watched this and this and this. And I'm always like, oh my Lord, how do you, how do, you do it all, Sam? But I suppose when you work at a cinema, you get free films to watch. It's, it's sort of part of the job, and then the hobby outside of work is uh, is talking about under ninety minute films. So uh, yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a little bit obsessed. The thing about this podcast is, uh, it, it's I took a long time trying to find a film that I was under ninety minutes, and then I found one, and I realised there was loads. You, you've got to get that right. You just get to the right moment. You just realise, oh, there's loads of good films under ninety minutes. But yeah, films are getting ever longer. It seems these days, Oppenheimer three hours or whatever it was and uh, Mission Impossible was endless um, it's the new thing I, I like long films I'm not going to lie I like long films but also I still think there's a place for shorter films and this film we're about to talk about Creep it's only 77 minutes right absolutely yes a really nice short runtime. and you're right often the films that come out in UK cinemas or you know cinemas anywhere um, the studios I don't know what it is they must have like an algorithm or some mm. sort of expectation on filmmakers like 
guys, really, if it's not two and a half hours, it's not a movie, you know, and, and that's what we get in cinemas predominantly. But when you go, and I think this film is a good example of it, when you go to things like film festivals, you look in the independent film market, mm. actually, you know, there's loads of great films under 90 minutes, but they're a little bit under the radar. You need to do a bit, you know, you just want to page two of Google mm. if you want to find a good under 90 minute films. It doesn't matter how long a film is, as long as it doesn't feel like they're taking liberties. It all comes down to how the story's told, what the scenes are, the characters. It's It's... Yeah, I don't think there's ever a perfect length for a film. No, it all just every story is different, and I think Oppenheimer is a really good example. You know, I'm here hosting an under ninety minute movie podcast. I think my favourite film of the year is Oppenheimer, a three hour long movie, but it just works. It kind of sings at three hours. I really enjoyed it, and I found it was it was weird actually. I, I watched it. Uh, I was in holiday in Norway, and I watched it in Norway of all places randomly, and uh, I got about two hours into the film, and then I realised I hadn't looked away from the screen once. You know, I'd been like so immersed in the story. I, I do love Christopher Nolan. I think he's bloody amazing. I'll admit sometimes his sound mixing raises some eyebrows. But I noticed in Oppenheimer there was music in every second of the film. And I think that's why I didn't look away. Maybe it sort of carried the film and kept me glued. Maybe it was a story. I don't know. But <laughs> what, a, what a great film and what a, what a triumph of cinema. But we didn't come in and talk Oppenheimer. I think Oppenheimer's had enough publicity as it is. Absolutely. In fact, this is, Oppenheimer is kind of against the whole ethos of the podcast. We managed mm. to just burn that last five minutes of pod. I'll, I'll see what our <laughs> editor wants to keep in. Uh, but uh, since you last spoke to us, um, you've written a flipping book. Like, you know, not only you've produced many, many videos and, and podcast episodes too, but... Uh, but uh, the book is now out. I am holding a copy of it. It's uh, say tops the the Sunday Times bestseller yeah. uh, list, which is is wonderful news. How I mean, what's it like holding a copy of the book, seeing it finished um, here today? It's surreal. It's hard to put it all into words. The book started about a year ago, writing wise. It took about six months on average, I'd say. Uh, took took about six months um, to write the whole thing, and uh, yeah, it's it was really fun. The book is about ten years living in Japan, and it's sort of. A chance for me to go back and reanalyze my whole time there and the highs and lows. Most of the book is about my first three years when everything was kind of new and exciting and weird and wonderful. Um, by the end of the book, you do want to die a little bit. It's like not not the reader, not you, dear reader, me writing the damn book. Um, by the end, I was like, bloody hell, why didn't I get a team of ghostwriters like all the <laughs> other YouTubers? Um, but it's it's a beautiful thing going back and reliving old memories and things that happened 10 years ago. It's still fresh in my mind. And uh, yeah, it was a really, really fun experience writing it. And uh, just a real sense of relief, not only finally having it in print in a finished form, but somehow getting number one Sunday Times bestseller status, which uh, is, is mind-blowing. Um, and it's been really cool crisscrossing streets around London and seeing it in Waterstone's shop fronts, right? And that's been really trippy. Um, and uh, yeah, honestly, really glad I did it. Incredibly relieved it's done well. And um, yeah, as I said at the start, in my fumbled introduction, um, really fun doing the audiobook for the most part. So that'll be out soon as well. Nice. I'm a big fan of an audiobook. Uh, so mm, me too. To, yeah. uh, especially as a podcast listener, it'll be like a very long episode of the Abroad in Japan podcast. Yeah, I mean, the hard thing was doing all the voices as well of all the characters because I didn't want to do like a Japanese, like a semi-racist Japanese, like, oh, Chris, it's all good to meet you. I had to sort of lighten my voice a bit. And uh, that was the most fun bit. When it comes to doing a book, the voices and acting, that's the best bit rather than, you know, droning on about Japan. It was fun acting it out. So cheers for the, the kind words, Dan, and um, I, hope you, I hope you enjoyed it. No, I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I, I it's, it's, you know, it's very much a self-reflective book, uh, you mm. know, going back you know, to some of your you know, earlier days 
in Japan. I, I was wondering what did you, how did you decide you know what to put in because you know this is a it's, it's you know it's not like the size of a phone book. It's like two hundred and eighty pages. You've had to make some editorial choices. I think I mean when I've 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 like anyone who's written anything, I've looked at the reviews right, and for the most part they're good. One review is rather worrying. Uh, it's got three stars. So I love the book, but there was blood all over it, and there's a photo of the book covered in blood. And I was like, oh, that's not my fault there's blood in the book. I didn't slice my fingers across the book. There's a little bit of me in every book. <laughs> like, I didn't del- it wasn't my calculated plan. It's just the book had blood on it. So I don't don't review it back. That should be reviewing the delivery company. Yeah. If you receive a copy of the Abroad Japan book and it's covered in blood, it's not me, dear listener. It is someone at a factory. He's cocked up. But, uh, um, yeah, the reviews are good, but uh, one of the criticisms was that uh, things sped up very fast in the second half. I and mean, actually, the first two thirds of the books are, of the book are kind of focused on that uh, first sort of three, four years when I didn't sort of document my life very much. I didn't think it'd be interesting for readers to just sort of relive my YouTube channel and videos, right? Which now these days my life is very heavily documented on on YouTube and whatnot. Um, so I wanted to focus on those stories and those people that kind of never made it to to air on the youtube channel and uh just it's also less interesting when i've kind of ex- experienced japan and i know the country well now right those first three years when i'm baffled by anything that is where the the hilarity is and the stories are i think so that's how i structured the book and the the the, the second half of the book is five or six years packed in of mm. like highlights and crazy moments like the North Korean missile that caused havoc and uh, meeting actor Ken Watanabe and doing, doing a documentary together with him. Stories like that. Very cool. And it's, uh, I think for you know, people who watch the, uh, the you know, your YouTube channel, watch your films, um, this is kind of a nice supporting document. It fills in some of the gaps. Yeah, I hope so. And um, I think it does. I, really, I think it does. And I don't really know who the book's even aimed at. I think just people that have a kind of an interest in Japan. I find books about Japan are very like you've got to be sort of obsessed with the culture and they go into a lot of depth on things that uh, can't be, can be quite hard to get into at times. Um, ways of making paper that date back 500 years or sword making. And Whereas this is a more of a, a sort of a general easy way into Japan if you've just sort of got an interest in it but you don't know a great deal about it. Kind of like when I went there, I knew nothing. I knew a few words and a bit about the culture but I went with a blank page. So, And I think that's the best, that's kind of what we've tried to do on a born Japan over the years, make it make Japan accessible. As you said, you know, we've been talking about movies for a little bit, and uh, and we were talking about coming back on the podcast. Mm. Um, and you, I mean, you in a way you've picked two films, but we're not going to here to talk about Saint Maud, Rose Glasses, uh, Saint Maud. That was on the that was on the maybe pile, but we have settled uh, on on Creep. And uh, I guess just before we get into the specifics of the film, what made you, you know, sort of put Creep above Saint Maud? I watched Creep probably about a month ago now, and I laughed so much. It's such a funny film. It's supposed to be a horror film, but I feel like it's actually more of a horror black comedy film. I laughed a lot. I was captivated, and it was just so much fun, and yet so simple. As we'll get into in a minute, like the entire film was written, scripted, shot, and acted by pretty much just two people, Mark Duplass and Patrick Bryce, right? Mm. And it's like, Jesus, just two guys did this. A lot of it improvised. And it's just so good. And it reminded me of the key to a film. You know, I often debate with people what makes a good film. And uh, I think it all comes down to the actors and the performance. And the performance of Mark Duplass in this as Joseph, the psychopath, is so 
bloody good and carries the whole film and makes it so special and good. Um, yeah, I, I was blown away for such a simple film on a shoestring budget. It reminded me what makes films good. They don't need to be Oppenheimer scale, you know, and it inspired me um, to, to smash the studio. Sorry, and then it knocked everything over there. And it inspired me to uh, want to make a film myself again because I've been wanting to make films for a long time now. I've talked to you about this, certainly. Um, but you just get daunted. By it all, and it's so big, seeing it's a big that undertaking. it is right the, the the whole team you require, and seeing just two guys pull this off, mm. it made me think, oh yeah, it doesn't need to be complicated to tell a good story. Just for a little bit of admin, there is another creep movie, a British film from 2004. Listeners, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the 2014 American uh, movie Creep. Um, so that hopefully, if you're Googling it, that will be uh, the one that you want to read up on. And I recommend you you actually pause the podcast and go and watch the film and come back because we'll get into you know spoilers and the uh, you know final few scenes of the film. But uh, but if you're determined, if you're doggedly determined to not watch Creep and listen to us talk about it, uh, the plot is about a cash-strapped videographer who takes a job in a remote mountain town and he finds a client who has some unusual uh, ideas in mind. It's directed by Patrick Bryce, uh, who's also acting in the film. He plays the cameraman. Um, it's his directorial debut. He's gone on to make a few other movies, including Creep 2, and it stars co-stars Mark Duplass, who is a bit of an under-90-minute hero. Um, he was in Safety Not Guaranteed, which we've talked about on this podcast with uh, director Colin Trevorrow, and he's uh, also in uh, one of our guests, Rebecca Thomas's, uh, made a sort of a TV series, and uh, he was the star of that. So I feel like you know he's he pops up on the podcast occasionally. He's becoming a bit of a, a mascot. Yeah, I mean, I'd never heard of him until this film, and I was blown away by his performance. It really carries it. The film came out in 2014. It premiered at South by Southwest Film Festival and then got picked up by Netflix uh, for international distribution. So it's now very easy uh, to watch listeners. And uh, yeah, 77 minutes long is a a heroic runtime. You know, we we love an under 90 minute film, but secretly, if it's under 80 minutes, that's like (laughs) a badge of honor. Yeah, and to and to still be good and tell the right story, right? (laughs) It's incredible. I uh, yeah, and. but it felt like the right runtime. I think any longer it would have been like, okay, they've gone a bit too much now. I think it's it's a, what do you call it, handheld style film, found footage, found right? Footage, found footage. Yeah. And with found footage, you've got more shaky cameras, you've got a bit more spontaneity. It can be hard to watch. I personally can't watch The Blair Witch Project. And that came out in like 2000 or 1999. So I do like I, I do like found footage films. One of my favourite other horror films that uh, I don't know if it's 90 minutes is Lake Mungo. Oh, it's actually it's just under 90 minutes, like 89. Damn, we could talk about that <laughs> next time. <laughs> next next time. time. That's a, that's a, a, an equally exceptional film that uh, really inspired me as well. So yeah, even though I've got a weird relationship with found footage films, they've inspired me more perhaps than any other genre. It's an extra sort of matrix for filmmakers to be concerned with because you're like, okay, it's going to be found footage. What are the rules for the camera in the film? And also you do want to have a little bit of cinematography and make sure things are framed right. And I think Creep does such a good job of often putting the camera down um, having yes. moments of like quite long takes, sort of static scenes, and that really heightens when the camera is then picked up and they're running away. Absolutely, it's really well done there. I mean, I've been I've been trying to get into cinematography a fair bit over the last few years, and um, this film it sort of tears up a lot of the rules of it. Like a lot of the shots don't have the rule of thirds that you know people stick by, and um, but the composition of the shots is amazing, and uh, particularly the last shot where something awful happens on a bench. Uh, (laughs) It works well. And often the camera's just left around in the sitting room or in locations in the house where it's set. And it just works. You feel like a spectator uncomfortably watching 
awful things unfolding. The thing I often think of with found footage films is why am I watching this? Like, mm-hmm. how has this movie in the world of the film ended up in my lap? And why? You know, why? And I think in this film, it does such a good job of you know why why we're seeing all of these things documented. The the cameraman, like he's a cameraman by trade, so you maybe assume he's used to like talking on camera. Maybe he sort of videographies mm. his life. Um, he's got this weird job, so that's kind of worth talking about towards the beginning. So the audience uh, are sort of with him for the setup. And then he has this really unusual, bizarre day with Mark Duplass, but he's being paid to film it. So again, that makes sense. Yes. Uh, and later, later on, he's just sort of terrified and he only has the camera to talk to. You, you need to buy into it. And it does work. And the premise, yeah, the premise, of course, is uh, Aaron mm. is uh, being tasked to film a guy who's dying of brain, uh, brain cancer or got a brain tumour. Yeah. And he wants to document a day in his life for his yet-to-be-born child, right? Yes. Um, and it kind of works. It yeah, it does work. I think so because like, when you go in, it's like the guy's a little bit weird when you first meet the Mark oh, yes. character. But you're like, ah, uh, you know, fair enough. Like you, you could sort of imagine that character would pay a cameraman to do this job. Mm. You're like, okay, I sort of buy this. You know, in in a way, he's like overly friendly at the beginning. You know, he's not sort of menacing. He's a very charismatic guy. I mean, the opening line, there's a, the opening scene where he appears is like a jump scare, isn't it? Mm. And he's like, wow, wow, this is going to be a fun day or something yeah. ominous with a big creepy smile, like a fox on it, like a, almost like a sneaky fox. Uh, although there's a horrible uh, mask he wears. What's that? It's not a fox. That's a wolf, isn't it's it? It's a wolf called Peach Fuzz. Peach Fuzz the wolf. <laughs> But I think because of that, you know, sort of conceit, you know, the guys being paid to film him, you you just sort of go with it. Like, okay, he wants me to film him in the bath for his unborn son. Uh, the bath scene is called Tubby Time, and he sings a little song. <laughs> He's basically they meet the creepy jump scare moment, and then uh, Joseph's like, you know, we're gonna have a, it's gonna be a tough day. You got this, and Aaron's like, yeah, I understand, brain cancer, your son, sure. Then Joseph's like, right, well then, let's get in the bath. And he just takes off all his clothes and dives in the bath. And it's like, holy shit. And it's constantly ramping up that unsettling kind of, just, just constantly feeling uncomfortable. Mm. But I, I, already at this point, this is like 10 minutes in, I'm laughing my head off. Because the character of Joseph is just so bizarre and magnetic. And Aaron is very aloof and taken aback by all this. Mm. Unbelievable. Like a normal... Just a normal guy who's like, what the bloody hell have I got myself into? And every cameraman has probably had those days where you like, you want me to film this? Seriously? <laughs> and I'm sure there's a little bit of that coming through. Absolutely. But yeah, it's a, it's a house in the woods, already a classic horror trope there. Secluded forest, no escape. But yeah, it just it's just crazy. It's just a camera in his hand and he's just filming it from a first person perspective. You feel like you're there very much caught up in it. And it works. It works. As you're watching Joseph splash around in a bath, pretending to bathe his unborn son, imaginary, (laughs) holding up his imaginary son in his hands, pretending to bathe him in the bath, you just feel like you're there and you can't look away. It's really disarming and and it's sort of, you know, you you become invested because, of course, you're sympathetic to this guy who's got Mm. terminal cancer. um, And, you know, he's doing this thing that sounds quite sweet. It sort of unravels a little bit as as the film goes along, but because we're seeing the the, the film through through um, Aaron Patrick Bryce's character's eyes, we're we're absolutely you know we're we're going along with him you know we're mm. very invested we're we're supporting the situation then we're becoming a little bit concerned and and then a little bit more freaked out as the film goes on. Every time he crosses the line, 
um, like they have a, a lunchtime scene mm. after that, and uh, he's like, "It's time to tell the truth. I was watching you, uh, taking photos of you when you arrived at the house before we spoke." And he's like, "Oh, why would you do that?" And he's like, "You know, I'm sorry. Now you tell me a, something about yourself, something you're not proud of." And every time he crosses the line, he sort of he's he's very good at raising awareness of the situation and calling attention to it to make you feel like, "Oh, he's a normal person who's maybe overstepped the mark." It's very good at reeling it back in, so he does psychotic things, but he doesn't feel like a psychopath per se. That really works in terms of the runtime as well. Like you, with a horror, you can't sort of put all your cards on the table too early because mm. you lose the tension. And this is mm. such a good job of like teasing you with like because he could have come clean during the you know dinner scene when he shows the photos on his phone, but then he sort of pulls it back in, mm. and the film does that a few times. You're like, is he? Oh no, he's fine. Is it? Oh no, he's yeah. Fine. <laughs> I was reading some reviews of this film. It was really interesting seeing what the feedback is. Because when I looked it up, I think, before I watched it, I, I, before I watch a film, I usually go and just, just have a rough idea, see what the reviews are. And uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, I think it was like 90% this film. Um, and I, I feel like that's a, a justified number. But there were lots of one-star reviews, and it's like, literally the worst movie I've ever watched. It made me want to drown myself in the lake that was in the ending scene. <laughs> there was no suspense, no climax. It was extremely predictable, yada, yada, yada. Where to start? Not a horror, not a psychological thriller. Very dull, mundane, and very predictable. It's just, I, people have certain expectations from horror films, and I, I find horror films very boring. They're probably my least favourite genre in many respects. It's probably my least favourite genre just because there are just tropes and expectations and things that happen. And so... It's it's an it's insane that I've even chose this film to be honest. Like it's it's surprising, but the fact I did I think shows that how it resonated with me and uh, and shows you that uh, yeah horror films can be good if you're like me who's cynical. You know, my partner is always like, "We've got to watch this horror film." We got to watch it. I'm like, "Oh God, not again!" <laughs> so I think it's not a completely scary film, but that suspense that's built throughout is. Wonderful, and if it wasn't for the comedy, I think it would be a bit of a tough watch. But because the character is so crazy and erratic and funny, and then straight after the bath scene, he's giving him a tour of the house, and the cupboard opens, and the big, colourful, creepy ass wolf mask pops out, and he's like, "Oh, don't worry about that. That's just peach fuzz." Yeah, <laughs> which is brilliant. Uh, peach fuzz, the creepy pink wolf. It's like a big, like yeah, horror wolf from a Halloween store, and I think it is just like mm. an off-the-shelf thing from a Walmart. You know, it's, it's pretty screwed, <laughs> but it's kind of it looks horrifying, but it's also hilarious. Um, what <laughs> peach fuzz? Bloody hell! Who thought that up? So peach fuzz actually. Uh, I mean, it's really disturbing. Like why this guy? It's also another jump scare. The the you know, Aaron's rooting around in a in a in a closet, and then you see a wolf in front of his camera, and it is a is a Halloween costume. But it's another it's another sort of like I don't know. It's it, it's like a fun. I sort of like to sort of you know like a couple of fake out scares mm. to get the heart rate going in a horror film before the real horror starts. But uh, the film was going to be called Peach Fuzz. That was the was it? title. I think that would have been cool. It would have worked. I think Creep is simple. It gets the job done. Yeah, you know? I think Creep lets the audience maybe know a little bit about what's uh, what's going on. Peach Fuzz, uh, I mean, I would love <laughs> if it was. And then if the whole franchise was called Peach Fuzz 2, Peach Fuzz 3, Peach Fuzz Takes Manhattan, that stuff. And, <laughs> well, it would be the, the fox is such a creepy, the wolf, sorry, has such a creepy appearance. It would be good for like branding and marketing. Because I think that's the hard thing with a horror film, you know, using the branding and marketing. For this, the name Creep, it's just a photo, I think, of the character Joseph mm. looking a bit unsettling through a window or something. But, uh, yeah, creepy. Hello, my name is Peach Fuzz. 
I might look like I eat you up. But I'm as friendly as a rabbit. And I'd make a very good friend. Peach fans, I am here. And there's nothing to fear. And it's important to point out at this point, like, there's there's no music there's no uh and the sound design is very minimalistic again i think they just wanted to keep it what if this was literally a video you just found at a cupboard right uh the only time i noticed there was excessive sound design were those jump scare moments and they do it very well they make it sound like a like there's an error in the camera it's like a tape getting stuck or something very quickly and subtly but the sound design is minimal and um and it still works. Again, like going back to Oppenheimer, where the music was kind of an integral part of keeping you in and looking, not, you know, keeping glued to the screen. This has none of that. It solely works on Mark Duplass's performance, being this larger than life, in your face character, um, never really giving you room to breathe as you watch him. And also, like, just the reality of finding a found footage film. Like, sometimes you see a found footage film and they do add a musical score, and you're like, well, who scored yeah, this guy's yeah. home movie <laughs> before I've seen it? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, but in this, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of masterfully done there, and, and you're always in the um, the reality of, 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 the, of the film. Once, um, when they sort of, their first encounter finishes, and they don't end on great terms. Um, Aaron's just decided that he's going to call it quits and go back to his own house and and try and, uh, you know, sort of forget this ever happened. But he's obviously freaked out. And the way he's, like, talking into the camera, you know, the cinematography gets a bit messier. It's not his face isn't perfectly framed. But, of course, he's he's just freaked out. And he kind of wants to just talk, to say these things out loud, I think. Yeah. Well, there's a cool shot when... Um he realised something's really off when his car keys go disappearing and missing uh, and he realised he has to stay the night mm. and then he ring, gets a call from Joseph's sister being like, get out of the house now. He goes in the toilet and puts the camera on the wall and he's talking to it. Yeah, I think another reason this film works is, as I said before, found footage, you think lots of shaky cam gives you a bloody headache. Mm. They do put the camera down quite a lot. Yeah. Like half the film, the camera's just on a table, on a shelf, on a wall. Um, and it's not the nicest looking shot. It's just there's no like clever lighting. It's literally just a room with the camera in it. Yeah, and it's yeah. it works. It somehow it bloody works. I guess that's the joy of digital as well. Like the cameras with their like auto settings can be so responsive to different environments. We go from pitch black rooms mm. to fully lit daytime scenes. And again, in the reality, there's no. Oh, I just need to change my lens or or anything. Yeah, you know, the camera just if can follow uh, Aaron throughout these rooms, and that's absolutely fine. It's funny. I um. A few years ago, I've got a, I've got, a, I've got a lot of cameras. Um, through the virtue of doing YouTube, I've got like a Blackmagic, I've got a Red Komodo, I've got Sony cameras galore. And even though I've got these amazing cinema cameras, for the short films or skits that I've made or done, I often gravitate towards the Sony camera um, that's a lot more automatic. Mm. I know, you know, cinematographers would lose their minds over this in some respects. Like, you've got a Red Komodo, you can shoot raw. <laughs> but I just, it's nice having a camera that does it all for you and it can work quite nicely. The way they've decided it to be this sort of, you know, he's a jobbing cameraman, he's got this sort of, you know, fairly automatic digital camera, it just works and it allows the relationship, which is really the star of the film, the, mm. the, the acting between these two, two guys, uh, to shine, you know, and, and we get to see, it's basically like a two-man play. And I know, from what I understand, they did improv a fair bit of it. I think there was a loose plan, a loose script, but they worked up lines on the fly and sort of kept going and seeing what they could do. And that, really work like a good comedy you know where characters keep going 
um, and they keep performing until they get the gold. That's kind of what they did here over those five days. It sort of sounds like quite a romantic way to make a film, is it? You know, like we just went in, we had a, a loose treatment. It was five pages long. We knew the beginning and the end, and we didn't know how we were going to get there, and we just experimented. Yeah, yeah. I think I think what baffles me about this is often I I would look at a film like this and go, "Oh, this is just a lazy, low budget thing," you know. But I think that's why I chose it. The fact that I was so glued to it, and enjoyed it so much, and my partner Charlotte, who's very critical about films, having watched every bloody horror film ever, she's really quick, and she really loved it as well. And that's just a testament to, even though it might not have been the most particularly scripted thing, they pulled it off. And I think once Mark Duplass has established his character, he can do lots of crazy things with that parameters of the character, right? Um, and his, his guy's case can get away with an awful lot. Absolutely. Yeah, if you're if you're charming, like kind of overly charming, you you can get a free pass. Absolutely. Yeah. I and this is the number. I think this is the reason it works is because you kind of like the main villain slash psychopath in this. You kind of like him. I don't know. Did you like him or is it yeah, just me? No, I, I think, Should I, think I be worried? Good, um, <laughs> I think uh, a lot of good uh, films that have a, you know, like a serial killer or a sort of a, a, a twisted character, they are also really charismatic. Like I've seen people describe Creep or compare Creep to things like Misery or Fatal Attraction. Yes. And I can kind of see that, you know, those are films that sort of turn on a dime and then, you know, it's, it, it ends in a very different way to how you think it's going to go. <laughs> I love it when the antagonist is likable or not necessarily relatable but like i'm thinking for example skyfall javier bardem's character's a psycho unhinged awful but you kind of like him in a weird way he's kind of fun the way he flirts with bond and the way he is charismatic far more memorable than half the other bond villains bond villains and uh, even remy malik's recent one um yeah it, it, i think if you can relate and enjoy a villain it makes them all the more powerful threatening scarier but fun and likable and Makes them all, all, all the more captivating for it. I think it's like a classic uh, storytelling thing, isn't it? The villain, you have to relate to the villain as much as you relate to your protagonist. Mm. And because you need to be invested in, you know, how they're interacting with the, with the story. And I think that's why everyone loved bloody Thanos in Marvel, right? Absolutely. You know, they spend so much time making, trying to make you go, oh, yeah, Thanos has got a good point, to be honest. <laughs> Even though he doesn't. But you kind of think, like, oh, yeah. They did a good job with Thanos. I give them that. I was. Not not necessarily rooting for Joseph, the murderous psychopath in this, but I was kind of felt like I like this guy. I want to see more. There is a sequel, so um, the people, there is. people thought the uh, thought the same there. But yeah, I think he's a good one. I think um, for me, villains, you know, Disney do villains so well, and often they're the more memorable characters. And not saying that Joseph is a Disney villain, but it's that sort of thing where they're like, <laughs> really, because he's the one on screen the most. Aaron is the cameraman, so he's often filming Joseph. So we spend most of our screen time mm. in the company of the villain, and and we are put through that sort of like what if we're trying to sound him out at the same time as Aaron. We're trying to work out what he's really up to. Absolutely. And again, this is why I chose it. It's like, as someone who has spent several years thinking and wanting to make a short film, fiction piece, something I've never done, it's like trying to boil down a film to what makes a film special. And usually, yeah, it's you need a memorable scene, which Quentin Tarantino, I'm always drawn to Quentin Tarantino, how you, you remember like every scene in a Quentin Tarantino film, or just the most incredible performance, uh, the character who's captivating. Those are things that draw me in. And I think that's why I found this so enjoyable to watch. 
like even though it's a low budget film the the budget the value is is from that duplass performance mm. you know that, that that covers uh makes up for a multitude of you know like things that aren't there you know cinematography more characters mm. soundtrack etc um because we're just we're just glued to this guy so i think the filmmakers knowing that they only had like five days that they had a tiny budget this is what they had to make this film they they just went for their most valuable asset which was the t- acting talent and, and i think the budget of this film what was it like fifteen thousand? it was in yeah it was like thousands like yeah low thousands of dollars <laughs> i think yeah it was it was a, a tiny amount i don't know how much it made obviously they sold it to netflix but i do know that uh netflix when this film's doing really well everyone's loving it it's doing a lot better than we thought it would have some money in here as a sequel and so they funded creep 2 uh so far as i understand it and then um blumhouse productions got involved i don't know at what stage they got involved with the first one but blumhouse productions often you know making incredible films on tight budgets and getting incredible returns for it. Yeah, they're sort of known for like having a, a very like low ceiling on their budgets, mm. and they're like, you know what, for this budget, even if it doesn't work, it will still make money because it's a horror. Like they sort of know that you know the, the, the standard rate for selling a horror to a TV station, an airline, or whatever mm. will will recoup their budget. And then sometimes their films that cost say five million end up making two hundred million at the at the box office. It's kind of wild. Yeah, I mean the big one was Paranormal Activity. I think they spent two hundred fifty grand and it made two hundred million plus. And that was just on the first film. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, uh, and Insidious. I think they yeah, they do a lot of those those sorts of things, like Insidious is all of the names. Get of out, them. they did get, get out, out yeah. of course. Yeah, M Night Shyamalan when he mm. came back from sort of a filmmaker's jail. <laughs> Clearly, and this I, I've talked about this with uh, friends. Like when I'm ever, whenever I'm considering making a short film, I do. Even though I'm not a big fan of the genre, I am drawn towards horror simply because the returns can be amazing if you get it right. Are you rolling? Yep. Just checking. I knew you were. All right, buddy. Welcome to your first tubby. When I was your age, I used to take tubbies with my dad. We'd call them tubby time. And it was pretty much the greatest time of the day. So since you and I might not get to do a tubby together, I thought we would have our first tubby right here. You ready? Horror cinema is a it's an emotional experience. It's very like you the audience are put in a position where they need to react. And I think if you, you to to really go from the extreme of making them laugh to making them scared, that takes them on a journey. And that's when you get the word of mouth. You know, like oh that was that was good because of this. But I think also like the the last scene of this film, or the second to last scene, when he spoilers when one of the characters Aaron meets a sticky end. That it was really weird. I I was like, oh, by that in a way that I never normally get in horror films. And I think if the found footage genre can do one thing well, it can make you because it feels so realistic. It's kind of like, oh shit. And when are we allowed to say what happens? Let's say what happens. Spoiler get ready, alert. Creep. Spoiler alert. Joseph uh, basically is like. Uh, hey Aaron, I know we didn't get on. Can you come and meet me by the lake? We'll make it up. We'll be the best of friends again. Yada yada. Aaron, very stupidly, is like, yeah, I'll give him one more chance, even though he's an unhinged psychopathic stalker who sends me videotapes and things. Stupidly goes and meets him by a lake. So the the camera's set up on the car window, looking out towards the lakeside uh, with the bench and um, Aaron sitting there, and the camera's filming. And Aaron's sitting there, and you're like. Please look behind you. Like the fact he trusts Joseph so much or seems to not think he's a bad person is very alarming. And that may be, I don't know if that's the only unbelievable part of the film, but there's a big difference between a psycho and a murderer, I guess. And then uh, Joseph 
slowly comes up behind him wearing the peach fuzz mask and it's like no look behind you look behind you look behind you please and he doesn't look behind him idiot and then joseph is carrying an axe and he raises it up and this axe has been like Chekhov's gun throughout the whole thing right it's just been laying around the set and it's in a constant joke that Joseph's like you're not afraid of the axe and Aaron's like no man it's like yeah be afraid of the fucking axe (laughs) and he comes up behind him and he swings the axe down on his head uh, directly down it's not like a chopping motion it's like it brings it down and there's this horrible noise that's a real noise that you would get from that and it's just horrible and the camera's just sitting there glued to it and then it's just, yeah, I was I literally went, oh, when it happened. And in horror films, I feel numb. When people die, I'm like, eh. But this, I was like, oh, shit. And that was the payoff of the film, really, to make me feel like that, to have me laughing throughout, to have me feel uncomfortable, and then have me go, oh, no, no, Christ, oh, that is impressive. I think setting up a horror film is a bit like telling a joke. You know, like, you need to have a good yeah. final thing. And, and the whole film, you're right, is building up to that final, to get both characters into the place where they need to be, where it makes sense for him to want to film in broad daylight this sort of meeting with a guy who he's, you know, a little bit afraid of and, and has seen some really, you know, sort of uh, worrying uh, things from. But uh, it's so well done. And I love that it was a broad daylight scene and actually all around him is totally... Yeah. I think that's why it's so good because you kind of like, and uh, maybe that's the the believability of it again, right? The idea of Aaron is sitting there at the bench in the public place. You think, well, nothing can possibly go wrong here, and he thinks that naturally, and then it does, and it's horrible. Uh, it doesn't end there either. Like Joseph finds the camera filming, and then he has the final word. Mm. Joseph, the character, he always one step ahead. He's always like, yeah, you know, I, th- I knew you'd think that, and this is that, and. Yeah, it works. That really works, that ending. But, ooh, that axe hitting him in the head. It really made me jump. You know, the <laughs> film isn't full of, you know, like, big gore scenes. No, but It does no. make you feel uneasy, but that is kind of the payoff. And Absolutely. Yeah, just, you don't think it's going to happen in broad daylight. Like, why? In every other film, the character would turn around, you know, and see. Absolutely. And Joseph even points out, you know, like, why did you think it was okay to, like, sit with your back to me? <laughs> and I think that's the most... That's the interesting thing. Like, we're not... As a viewer, we're not entirely sure if joseph's a killer it's kind of left vague you know something's wrong you know he's a stalker and a bit weird and eccentric but nothing in his character indicates that he's a murderer per se and so when he does that there is a degree of shock you're like oh shit he actually is a killer and then he reveals all the other tapes of all the other people he'd met and all the other times he'd done it but yeah that will he won't he is he is he not it kind of is what helps drive the film as a viewer you know, as well as laughing along and also being on the edge of your seat, you're kind of trying to be an investigator and ask yourself, yeah. is this guy actually a murderer? I think the ending's a really good payoff for if you do watch the film again, you um, because like, it makes so much more sense to the Joseph character um, when he goes to his wardrobe at the very end of the film. You see all of the tapes from all of the people that he's yeah. presumably murdered, uh, you know, over the, with the same sort of conceit, you know, people documenting this their relationships, and it makes total sense why he's so excited when he first sees Aaron at the beginning, why he says things like you know, oh, you're a good one, you know, sort of stuff like oh, of course, okay, he's like you know, looking at you like prey. Absolutely, absolutely. And the second, uh, they haven't seen the sequel. The sequel takes it in an interesting direction. Like he, oh, I can't spoil it for you. But it, it, it carries on where you, you, you like him. You, he, he does it in such a way that you continue to like him and not exactly be his champion, but sort of enjoy who he is and, 
Uh, well, that sounds awful again. But you, you kind of like him in a way that you, makes you feel almost guilty, which is worrying. You shouldn't want to like a killer in a film, and that is another testament to how well the, the film is done and, and what a great character they conjured up for this, for Je- uh, for, for uh, Duplass's character. That's kind of wild. Like, yeah, if you've if you've seen the first first one and then you go into the sequel and you you sort of have to you know, go through it all again, that's just testament to that character, that performance, mm. and that sort of you know believability uh, there. But um, the sequel is eighty minutes long. It came out a couple of years after this, you know, quite quickly because this was such a success, and mm. uh, is also on Netflix. So listeners, you can do a double bill. Yeah, and they're, they're, uh, there's been talk of a sequel, but I, they I've heard that they just haven't had an idea that they're excited about. Yeah, they're um, they're both sort of busy guys. Patrick Bryce has made another film, also under ninety minutes, called Corporate Animals, which is really fun. Um, it's written by Sam Bain, who wrote Peep Show, um, but it's, oh, well. it's all set in America. Um, I think that's like seventy-seven minutes as well. It's got a lovely runtime. But um, yeah, they keep coming back to Creep, and I think they get asked about it a lot. But I think they just they know this is like a, you know such a special character. They want to get the story right. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and this film, more than any other I've watched recently, has really kicked me into high gear and wanting to produce a film. Um, obviously, I've been trying to wait for the book to be out of the way first. I'm, I'm, I'm very good at like doing eight things at once and then destroying myself. Like When I was writing the book, I was doing a training for a chess boxing match in Los Angeles that nearly destroyed me. So I've been waiting for the book to be out of the way, and then I'm going to channel some energy into this. But, you know... As a moron who's always gone, oh, I can't make a film until I've got a a, a black magic camera. Oh, I can't make a film until I've got a, a red cinema camera. Oh, it's just like I'm making excuses. Start, stuff the equipment, sod all the cinematography, get the character, get the story, go from there, right? And uh, I've got a few ideas kicking around, but this has made me realise that I don't need... And, and, and you, if you're listening to this and you want to get into film, like you don't need all these things. You just need a solid idea. Admittedly, the most important thing you do need is a good actor, an amazing performer who can carry it. But real exciting to know that you can get a film on Netflix mm. with a crew of just a cast and crew of no more than two people. I think, yeah, it's, it completely blew away my misconceptions um, and preconceived notions of what you need to make a film. Thank you so much for recommending Creep, uh, you know, and, and putting it into the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. We've got a really good, I think, horror as well in terms of runtime. Mm. It's one of the things that we keep coming back to. What we like to do at the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest is, as well as picking a film, we do like to ask our guests, you know, if, if you could show this at the cinema, because I think a lot of people do watch this film on Netflix, you know, where would you, how would you like to screen it? Have you got a favourite cinema or like, you know, if you could dress a venue and put a bit of a pop-up screen in, you know, where would you like to show Creep? I think you would watch it by a lakeside where he gets stabbed in the head with a big pickaxe. Uh, big axe. Yeah, maybe by a lakeside. Or I used to work at a castle called Leeds Castle and it's kind of creepy. There's lots of ghosts there at night, apparently. There's not, though. People just leave the windows open. I think that'd be good fun to do it. Good place to do it. An outdoor screening, you know, embrace the sort of that woody cabin sort of from the beginning of the definitely, film. Definitely, definitely. And have have what do you what do you eat when you watch a film normally? Do you want eat popcorn? I'm not a big popcorn guy, <gasps> which is kind of sacrilege. Disgraceful. Um, my 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 favourite is either a coffee, really, uh, and and a coffee or a beer, depending on time of day. Oh well, yeah. uh, and a little ice cream. A little ice, ice cream. cream has to, you know, just a little t- tubs you get in the theatre. <laughs> I must say, I do like popcorn. I was in, uh, as I said, I was in Norway for, for Oppenheimer, like you do, and uh, <laughs> I got the popcorn. In Norway, it's not good. The popcorn, love Norway, best best country in Europe, probably. Mm. But my God, the popcorn! They leave it like they cook it like a few hours ago, 
and then they leave it in like a cupboard that's heated and the popcorn it's was very just, cooked when you get yeah, it yeah and then you go to Japan and the popcorn's like God himself or herself gender neutral God comes down and has made the popcorn and it's just amazing it's just so fresh and delicious and Japanese cinemas as well honestly they get it right they're all like IMAX or massive screens. Everyone's nice and quiet. The food's amazing. They all seem quite sort of state of the art. I've never uh, seen a film in Japan, but I've been to cinemas because I like to sort of check off some famous ones on my film nerd bucket list. But uh, but they all seem quite new, you know, like state of the yeah, art. Yeah, they are. You know, best projection, it's laser, true, 4DX, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I know we prize the sort of old-fashioned rustic cinemas here, but in Japan they literally are brand new. All of them that I can recall that I've gone in have been built in the last 10 minutes. Oh, your screening. If if you could invite, you know, uh, Patrick Bryce or, or Mark Duplass along, would you? I don't know. You know, do, do you often talk to filmmakers? You know, would you like to to sort of talk to them about the film and pick their brain, or or do you prefer to just let the film do the talking? I think as a, a wannabe filmmaker and a YouTuber, I'm always fascinated on how a film was made, mm. and I would want to pick their brains on that a bit rather than be like, how did you make the character? I'd be more like, how did you walk in with the Canon camera in your hand and not bang the microphone, and how did you light it? What do you do there? I think I've been more interested in the technical side of it, but I would like to speak to them, particularly uh, Mark Duplass, on where that character came from. Yeah. Who did he watch? I mean, as you say, you know, Misery, he said, and then the Fatal Attraction, but the character he played didn't really remind me of either of those characters. Maybe Misery, maybe she was similar, but where did that come from? I'd be fascinated to hear because um, the film was an indie film there isn't like you know loads of like junkets and like press about it so yeah. actually just getting some time with them to talk about the film would be really interesting Absolutely. Um, oh fab well there you go so we've got Creep in the 90 Minutes West Film First thank you so much Chris thank you for coming back um, two bangers Sexy Beast and Creep what's that's next that's an amazing then? double bill will it be St. Maud next time <laughs> <laughs> maybe we could keep talking about St. Maud but never cover it oh. and you'll have something else something else Rose Glass has been on the podcast the director and she's super nice yeah so. she was awesome I um I love St. Maud, and it's just such a, it's interesting, such different films. Like I, When I saw Creep and I thought about doing it here, I was a little bit like, is there much to talk about? Because when St. Maud and, and Sexy Beast, you've got music and cinematography and performances you can talk about. With Creep, you've got performances and that's it, really. There's, as we've discussed, you know, there's not so much going on in cinematography terms. So I wondered if we could talk about it, but I think we did. I think it went well. Oh, that's good, to, that's good to hear. I think we've I think I think we've we've stripped film back to what a good film is, and that's really smart and clever and brilliant. Well, it's been so nice to talk to you in in the same room, Absolutely, rather than man. you know, sort of ten hours apart or whatever it is on on Zoom. Yes, and uh, and yeah, and you know, pick up the Abroad in Japan book, folks. It's uh, not only is it a wonderful read; it's a beautiful book. Lovely cover art on this book. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and I didn't just, do it myself, admittedly. Yeah, what a great illustrator as well. We yeah, say that. Uh, great guy, Matt Saunters. Uh, Matt Saunders, I've known him a few years, and I I met him and I knew I wanted him to do it um, five years ago, and oh, luckily, cool. yeah, he did. So it's very lucky there. Your podcast, your Broad in Japan podcast, is now on YouTube. Yeah, when are you 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 you're not on YouTube, are you? No, we're not on YouTube. <gasps> Should we be on YouTube? I think so. Oh, yeah, I mean, shit. you're missing out on a big audience because <laughs> the sad truth is, a lot of people don't still know don't know what a podcast is. Yeah, that is true. And I feel like even if you've just got a photo of you sitting in a room on the screen for the entire hour of your podcast. It's still better than having nothing. Okay. You could tap into a new audience. Um, but that's we'll leave that to the next episode of that's cool. yeah, podcast tips. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it, we've opened up a new a new door and a, a new load of listeners and viewers, and I recommend doing it. Oh, fab. Well, thank you so much, Chris. And uh, yeah, I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, Sam. Hope to uh, see you in Japan soon. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.